In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjal farajah. Brothers, sisters, viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So welcome to this lecture which is supposed to be a continuation of the topic that we began last week and inshallah it will be the uh, second part second half of that topic uh, and we will conclude it today inshallah uh, as you remember the topic that uh, we had began what was to try to answer this question that was asked many times in different ways uh, during the previous lectures that we had on why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, reveal the last message uh, to humanity, why would it be revealed in the Arabic language and to the Arabs. Uh, and so we said that this is uh, kind of a derivative of uh, a bigger topic that we, we presented. Uh, and uh, if you remember properly, um, if you remember the, the position where this objection may be asked, uh, it is that we presented in our belief system, we presented the topic of prophethood, and then we presented the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad And within that, we explained that in the case of the prophethood, the message of Prophet Muhammad it happens to be a universal and eternal message. It is a message that applies to all human beings and it is a message that will apply to humanity until the end of times. And so this was linked with the topic of Khatamiyya, so that the Holy Prophet is actually the seal of prophethood or the seal of prophets, the last of the prophets. There will be no more scriptures, there will be no more religions or guidance to humanity after the message of the Holy Prophet. So if that is the case, and Islam is truly a universal and eternal faith and message and religion to humankind, then why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal it in this manner to only a certain group of people in, who speak a certain language as opposed to revealing in a universal way? And so we began to, of course, we gave kind of the summarized short version of the answer to this during the lectures that we had on prophethood when we talked about this topic, but we decided to spend a little bit more time given the questions that we received, the interest that uh, you guys had, and try to give a little bit more of an elaborate uh, answer to this question. So why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal this message in this way? In part one, we tried to explain that when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed this message in Arabic, in actuality, there's two questions here. One part of the question, which is what we tried to answer already in the last time we met, it's why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to reveal his message to those people? So those people could be any people, but they happen to be Arabs. So it's not specifically about the Arabicity or the Arabness of those people. It's those people. Why were they the ones to receive that message? So they happened to be Arabs, so of course they received it in Arabic. So the true first answer that we're giving is taking into consideration everything that we said in the last encounter that we had, all 10 answers that we gave, you take those and you combine it with the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decided that the manner in which he reveals, that he reveals his message and his guidance to humanity goes through prophets. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not decide to guide humanity, say through some direct inspiration or revelation that we all get. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided to do it in another way. And we explained why. Okay, we're not going to go through all of those arguments again. We said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to give you role models. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to show you the merit and value and worth and special status of those people and to show you what you could aspire to become if you were to follow in their footsteps. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created a system that we refer to as prophethood through which his guidance comes to humanity. 
But that would also mean that a prophet, being a prophet, being a human being, is going to be communicating that message with the rest of human beings in the manner in which human beings communicate with each other, which means that it is going to be human language. So for the first answer, you have to keep in mind that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decided that this is the group of people who are going to get the final message and they are going to be the ones who are the first recipients. And we're going to come back to that in a second. So this role of first recipient we said was key and we're going to come back to that. And because they are the first recipient and they happen to be Arabs, they are going to receive that message in Arabic. Okay, so that's what we covered until now. Now we want to look at this second part of the issue, which is why is it in Arabic? So I think the, where the objection stems from is clear. It's that if we say that Islam is universal and eternal, why does it have to be a Arabic message? And why did it have to be sent to the Arabs? Why was it sent to all of humanity all at once? Okay. So as we said, the issue derives from the discussion that we had on the universality and the eternity of the message of Islam. That's one. And I think the link should be clear with what we presented in the last time that we met. So today what we're going to try to do is to focus on the second half of that question, which is not so much why was it those people, but why was it in Arabic? So we're looking at the Arabicness. Okay, the Arabicness, the language, the Arabic language, and is there anything special about it that would have made it the ideal language through which that message was going to be communicated? And how does it help us understand the link with the universality of the, uh, you know, the universality of the message of Islam? Okay, so the as we said the objection to properly understand the objection. The objection is that Islam is universal, Islam is eternal. If Islam is revealed in, to these people, is it still, can we still consider it a universal religion? And if it's revealed in a specific language, can we still consider it to be a universal message to all of human beings? The keys that I want you to keep in mind from the first part of the answer, and then we build on it in today's lecture, is that we said it is extremely important to keep in mind the role of the first recipient. And this applies to all of human history. There are amazing things that could have spread in humanity, but that did not because the first recipient did not, was not the right first recipient. So it did not travel. It did not spread properly. So what we tried to do <clears throat> in the last time that we met is to explain why those Arabs, that group of people, so the, that they were Arabs is completely secondary, that that group of people who have that set of uh, context and characteristics and circumstances. So we talked about you know, the culture, we talked about their tribal nature and their family ties, we talked about their political structure, financial structure, geostrategic location between the Romans and the Persians and the land in which they lived. We talked about all of that and we explained how each one of these factors contributes to, if used properly, if used by a genius like the Holy Prophet, contributes to making them the ideal group of people to be the first recipients for that message so that they would be the ones who would ensure that it will spread to the maximum. Any other group would not have been able to spread, to be used to spread the message of Islam to the maximum like those that group did, which were happened to be the Arabs. Okay, that's one. Two, when we say that it is, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who chose, who put all of those circumstances in place. He sent the Holy Prophet at that time to those people, but then it was up to the Holy Prophet to kind of manage that whole situation in the way that he did. So here's where you have to decide. You have to see, did he actually do anything special or not? And the reason I ask this is because sometimes when you look at a set of circumstances, 
let's say a group of people in this case. When you look at them and you, you want to see to what extent is it natural for them to evolve into something? Is it natural for them? And to what extent it's absolutely not natural? So it's more of, a, of an exception, not necessarily, I could call it a miracle, something supernatural, it breaks away with all the laws. Let's just say there's a natural evolution towards something, or it doesn't really look like it should have been a natural evolution, but it still happened, which tells us that there was an external factor. So what do we mean? You look at a group of people, you look at the way they live, the technology they have access to, the knowledge they have, uh, you know, their family ties, their culture, their economy, their politics. You look at all of that. You can do that in, with any society today. You can kind of predict where should they be in 10 years, in 50 years, in 200 years. If you're really a sociologist and a historian and you understand the kind of the ebb and flow of how a society works, then you should be able to trace uh, the path of that society to kind of predict how they're going to mature into something else, right? This is perfectly normal. When you go to that group of people, uh, they happen to be the Arabs living in the Arabian Peninsula at that time, when anyone looks at them, when anyone looks at the circumstances of their living and their political, social, cultural, you know, as we said, their intellectual, their uh, all the factors that we looked at, would the, there have been anyone, would anyone looking at them, could they have predicted what was going to happen next? So in the course of, let's say, over the one generation or less, the Holy Prophet's entire mission was, you know, 20, maybe 2 to 23 years, with three years being a secret mission. And then he spent about 13 years in Mecca and 10 years in Medina, where he really was able to take his mission to another level. And during that little short period of time, you see the incredible spread of this religion with people entering it before anyone is even sent to them. What happened there? What is the factor that makes that kind of group or society that if you had looked at them before the advent of Islam, no one would have ever been able to guess that they would be where they were one of the fastest growing empires and soon after they became the biggest empire in the world, the world had ever seen. Okay, how, how did this happen? When you look at them, the before and after, there has to be something that happened. And the something, in short, is the Holy Prophet. That was the only difference. And this is where you see the greatness of this man, that he's able to take that kind of society, anyone looking at it would say, you know, the last group of people who are going to be able to evolve in this manner and who are going to be able to have this kind of impact on the world stage would be them. And yet the Holy Prophet was able to specifically use them to create the maximum advantage for the spread of this message, the message of Islam, in his own special way. And this is something that has been recognized by some thinkers and historians. And this was the entire foundation. I don't know if you guys must, some of you must have heard about a book called uh, The 100, uh, a ranking of the most uh, influential people or persons or individuals in history. And uh, it's written by Michael Hart. And he ranks the Holy Prophet as being the number one. And the number one most influential human being in the history of humankind. And the reason is because not just the outcome, but where did he start from? What was, how much influence did he actually have to have to create that kind of change single-handedly? And that's what that historian was actually looking at. In any case, so this is what I wanted to make sure that we leave that lecture with, keeping in mind the 10 answers that we gave or the 10 dimensions or factors through which we looked at that Arabian world, the Jahiliya world of the Arabs, and what the Holy Prophet was able to do with them in order to create maximum spreading of his message, of the message and the teachings of this religion of Islam. And so, keeping all of this in mind, now we want to move to the second part of the question. So we answered, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose those people? We gave 10 answers. Now we want to ask the question, but why did it have to be in Arabic? So as we said, now we're going to try to give five answers. Okay, 
But there's a part of the five answers that has already been given, which is if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen this system of guidance to humanity through a prophet, and that prophet speaks the language of his people, and those people happen to be Arabs, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to reveal it to the Arabs in Arabic. And the reason, go back to the previous lecture and you will see why those people specifically to become the first recipients of that message. So that's one. That's something just to keep in mind because that's a link with the previous one. Now, before we jump into the answers, I wanted to kind of put you in the mood of this general topic by reading the verses of the Quran. This is not all of them. I'm skipping a few here. In total, there are 14 verses in the Holy Quran that I've counted that have to do with this topic, directly or indirectly. And you will, you will see what I mean by indirectly. The topic being the language in which the Holy Quran has been revealed. Okay, so the first category we can say is the general rule that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that when he reveals a set of teachings to human beings, he reveals those teachings in their own language. Okay, so we have this verse that says, we did not send any messenger except with the language of his people so that he might make might make clear to them so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in order that we create maximum clarity for that message to be understood allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always talks to the people in their own language that's a, that's a general rule keep it in mind okay in another verse those three verses now See, we haven't talked about Arabic yet. That was general, general principle. In those verses, the Holy Quran is now specifically talking to the Holy Prophet and his people. And he's saying, and we have revealed this Quran in your language to your, to the, and in the language of your people. So it says, indeed, we have made it, we have eased it, okay? And the Holy Quran uses those terms. Indeed, we have eased it in your language so that you may give good news thereby, by it, to the God-weary or to the pious and warn with it a contentious lot. So those who are pious, they're going to be receiving good news from it. And those who are contentious and who just wants to uh, obstinately and stubbornly, you know, argue with the Holy Prophet, they are going to be warned by the Holy Quran. Okay, so now we're starting to see that the Holy Quran is being sent in a language, again here, see how it says, in your language. Indeed, we made it simple or we eased it in your language so that you may give. So in order for the Holy Prophet to use this teaching to perform these functions, so in the first one it was to make clear, here it's to warn and to give good news. In the next verse, indeed, we have made it or eased it in your language so that they may take admonition so they can use it as a warning, okay? And they may take heed and they actually listen to what is being said. Okay, in another verse, and thus we have revealed to you an Arabic Quran so that you may warn the mother of the towns, usually they say that's Mecca, and those around it, and that you may warn against the day of gathering, so Yom Al-Qiyamah, about which there is no doubt a group in paradise and a group in the blaze or a blazing flame. So, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send the Qur'an in Arabic? It's so that he can warn the mother of the towns, Umm al-Qura, Mecca, according to the majority of the interpreters, and that you may warn, so that everybody understands this warning in their language, it is being sent to them in Arabic. Okay. Now there are a group of verses, a batch of verses, a category of verses, that specifically refer to Arabic again and again. So we're gonna go through them quickly. And again, I'm reading these so that you keep them in mind as we go through the answers afterwards. Indeed, we have sent it down as an Arabic Quran so that you may reason. This is aql, so that you may understand, so that you may reason. Keep that in mind. Thus, we have sent it down as a dispensation in Arabic, okay? In another verse, we certainly know that they say it is a human being who instructs him. So it's not Allah who's teaching him. He's, he's learning the Quran from someone else who's teaching him. The language of, of him to whom they refer is, in the Quran it says, A'jami. 
So the best way to translate it for now is non-Arabic. Okay, it's foreign, it's obscure. While this, this revelation that they're hearing, is a manifest, clear Arabic language. Surah Al-Nahl. And another verse in Surah Taha, it says, thus we have revealed it down as an Arabic Quran, and we have given uh, or paraphrased or propounded, explained some uh, of the threats or the warnings in it so that they may, your people, may be Godwari, so they may be pious, they may be righteous, religious, or it may make them take heed, or it may evoke remembrance in them. Okay, so here we're seeing how the Holy Quran is being sent in Arabic to perform these functions. Okay, there's a functional reason. If it's not in Arabic, this is not happening. That's how we understand it, right? A few more verses. This is indeed a revelation successively sent down from the Lord of all the worlds. The trustworthy spirit has come down with it upon your heart so that you may be one of the warners in a clear or evident or eloquent Arabic language. In another verse, Surah Al-Zumar, certainly we have drawn for humankind in this Quran every kind of example so that they may remember. An Arabic Quran, free from any distortion or without any deviation, that they may be God-weary, that they may be pious. In Surah Fussalat, a book whose verses have been detailed or made distinct or elaborated, an Arabic Quran for a people who have knowledge. So now it's about knowledge. Okay. And had we made it a non-Arabic Quran, they would have surely said, why have not its signs been clarified or articulated or explained what a non-Arabian and an Arabian, right? So a non-Arabian, so A'ajami is the Holy Quran and the Prophet is Arabi, it doesn't work. Say for those who have faith, it is a guidance and healing. But for those who, have, who are faithless, there is deafness or in, uh, obstruction in their ears and it is lost to their sight uh, because there is a blindness. They are as if they were being called from a faraway place. So they completely miss the point of the Holy Quran. They are blind and deaf to it. The next verse in Surah Al-Haqqaf and before it, so before the Quran, the book of Moses, a guide and a mercy. And this is a book which confirms it, so which confirms the guidance in the book of Musa, an Arabic language to warn those who have committed injustice and good news for the virtuous or the doers of good. Okay, in Surah Al-Ahqaf. So keep those verses in mind. Now we're going to get into the answers. So answer number one. Why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal the Holy Quran in Arabic? Let's start with the most frank, honest answer that we should be giving to this question. And the real answer is, we do not know for sure. What we do know, based on everything we know, is that, and everything we have said until now, is that we believe in a God who is wise. We believe in a God who acts with purpose, because he has no reason to act without purpose. Right? And when we talked about divine wisdom, when we talked about the type of God he is, we said this is the type of God who always, believe, who always behaves with infinite wisdom. That much we know. But do we know what that wisdom is? And do we know that what it is fully? No. We know what it is if we are told what it is. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through his scriptures, through his prophets, through the Imams, teaches us the wisdom behind an act, the reason behind a teaching, then we know why he behaved the way he did, why he acted in a certain way and not another. And even when that is the case, even when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains to us the reason why he does something or doesn't do something or how he does something, even if it is explained, that's never the full answer. His wisdom is infinite. The part that we are getting is part of the answer. And it can never be the full answer because we will never be able to appreciate and encompass all the criteria that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
considers that go as a factor into his act and his decision, let's call it. That is impossible. We don't have an ability to understand that. So the best we can have is if we are given the answer, then we know what it is. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does this. Okay, and the Quran is full of this. When he explains in the verses of the Quran, we are telling you to do this or not to do that, and here's the reason why. Here's the wisdom why, but this is always partial. That's one. And then we have the other divine acts, divine decisions, and no explanation is given to us. So what do we do in those cases? In those cases, we can do what we are doing right now. And that's why I use this as a first answer. It's conjectural. We do not have 100% certainty of why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did it this way. But the best we can do is put all, everything we know together in a certain way and see if we can come up with possibilities. And that's what we're doing. We're coming up with possibilities on why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may have used the Arabic language as the language for his universal and eternal message, his last message, okay? So when we say conjectural, what we mean is it's not completely random or arbitrary, of course. We're saying that we're putting a theory together. That theory may be completely right, maybe completely wrong, maybe somewhere in between, okay? So that's why scholars have to continuously work on these and make them evolve and improve on them and find the flaws and fix them and so on and so forth. So the reason we are talking about this now, and one of the examples, now let's forget the reason, the example that we have already encountered that has to do with this, because I had explained it in detail, so I'm referring to it to, to make this point a little bit clearer, if you remember when we talked about general prophethood, we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not given us all the reasons and all the manners in which he decides when a prophet is required for a group of people, which group of people should receive that prophet, what kind of prophet he should be sending, should it be one or more prophet with a new scripture or not, and so on and so forth. I think you all remember this. So what we were saying is, after the fact, we are able to look back with hindsight and say, these might be some factors that may explain to us why those people, they were due for a prophet. And we gave that and we explained all of that when we explained general prophethood. But we could never predict that those gr that group of people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should send them a prophet. And which rank of a prophet it should be. And which kind of miracle they should get. And which kind of scripture? Should they get a new scripture or a prophet who recorrects the path based on previous scriptures? That all happens. Who knows this? Who can predict what's going to happen next? No one. Unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, we don't know. So this is where you have to admit the limit to the limits of your knowledge as a human being, that this is where it stops. You cannot go beyond this and come up with a certainty. You can't. And this notion that we cannot rationalize the decisions and the acts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is something that's been confirmed again and again in the Holy Quran. Here are a few, uh, a few verses about this. So in one verse, the Holy Quran says, say, O Allah, master of all sovereignty, you give sovereignty to whomever you wish and strip of sovereignty whomever you wish. You make mighty whomever you wish, and you abase whomever you wish. All good is in your hand. Indeed, you have power over all things. So why Allah wishes to make someone a king and remove someone from their kingdom? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wishes. Is it random? Is it without wisdom? Is it without purpose? If we do not understand or know, of course not. If we are able to tell after the fact these might be the reasons, is that 100% sure? No, this is conjectural. But this is the best we can do. Another verse in the Quran says, your Lord creates whatever he wishes and chooses. So this could be most likely a direct reference to when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses someone for a prophethood. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at earth and decides that the Virgin Mary is going to be the mother of Jesus Christ. And she is going to carry a miracle. 
and she's going to be a miracle herself. How is this done? Allah chooses. That's what the Quran says. Your Lord creates whatever He wishes and chooses. Choice does not belong to them. They cannot come back and object to Allah. Why did you make so-and-so a prophet and not so-and-so? It's not up to them to decide this. They don't know. It's not their place, right? Choice does not belong to them. Immaculate is Allah and exalted above having any partners they ascribe to Him. As though there's anyone else who could be put at the same rank with God to decide of such things. And finally, he is not questioned about what he does, and they are questioned. This is for all of us. This is all of humanity. This is all creatures before God. You cannot really question why Allah does or doesn't do. Especially, all you can do is understand how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acts generally. And what we know is He acts based on infinite wisdom. So there's infinite wisdom behind his act because of the nature, because of the essence of who he is. But the specifics, we fail to understand them unless he tells us what they are. So that's answer one. We do not know for sure. Okay? So that said, let's move to answer number two. Answer number two, and there is so much that has been book after book have been written about this. And this is a classic answer you will get. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose the Arabic language to reveal his final message in? The short answer, and we're going to go into a little bit more detail to give you some examples. The short answer is there is something specific about the Arabic language. The Arabic language is very, very special. It's special in its lexicon, so the words that make it up, in its morphology, how you create the words, its syntax, the grammar upon which it's built, and so on and so forth. It's special. It's a very, very special language. And of course, here we can't get into the technical details. That would take a lot of lectures to try to explain from every angle what has been said about how special the Arabic language is. So I'm just giving you quick answers, quick points that come from the classic literature about how, in what way, is Arabic special. One of the main points raised here is the number of roots. So a root is, Arabic is a type of language that has roots. And if you, if you have a root, it means you can create multiple words from a certain set of sounds. So let's say the majority of sounds in Arabic, the majority of words, the roots in Arabic are made up of three parts. Okay, so it's a type of language where the roots are made up of three parts, three sounds, three syllables. You put them together, that creates a root. From that root, depending on how you decline that root, you can get words. And depending on certain rules of declination, you are going to get different meanings. You're going to generate, there's patterns that if you follow them, you're generating different patterns of meanings. No matter what the root is, you always apply this. And if it's a root made up of four parts or made up of five parts, these rules are going to apply in their own. If you look at any language to understand how rich that language is, you have to look at how many roots does it have. So basically you're looking at what is the potential combination number that you're looking at. How many words could you potentially create? And then according to the, to the stats for the Arabic language, if you look at many, many other languages, I'm not going to go through them now, but let's say one of the richest languages right now is English. It's between 400 and 600,000. If you look at Arabic, it has 12.3 million roots, 12.3 million combinations, not, not roots. So if you put the roots together, and I hope I didn't say roots in English, how many words you're basically generating from the available roots that you have, in Arabic you have 12.3 million. So if you combine many of the languages of the world together and put them side by side, you still don't get, a, get as many potential words as you could have in the Arabic language. So this is just to start giving you an idea of the richness of this language compared to other languages. And where you see it sometimes is, and this exists in all languages, but not to this degree. You know, I'm sure some, many of you have heard, for instance, that the people who live in the north, say in Canada or Russia, how many words they might have, 20 or 30 or 50 words for snow, for instance, the different types of snow. Well, let's look at Arabic, the Arabic language. There are more than 60 words to talk about a dog. There are more than 80 words to refer to honey. There are over 100 words for the sword. More than 200 for a snake. 
more than 500 for a lion, and more than 5,400 for a camel. Okay, are they the same? No, these are different ways to talk about a reality with a nuance. There's a reason why you choose this word instead of that word. If you have the linguistic affinity, you will understand what is different between those two words or three words or 10 words or 5,000 words, okay? So this type of richness doesn't exist elsewhere. That languages have multiple words to refer to a reality, and this is more a cultural thing because there's a need for it, okay? The more you encounter that reality, the more you have to express its uh, nuances and its differences to others, the more words you need for that, and that's when you come up with different words. So what we were saying uh, right before stopping is that there is a scholar, he's actually a, a medical doctor, but who decided to, to write uh, you know, a, a book that has now become, it's called Marjam al-Firdaus. And um, in, in his case, he is someone who initially began by looking at the Arabic language, thinking that the Arabic language has uh, something like 330 words that were borrowed by other languages and they became the source uh, of those languages for those words. So you know how languages, they borrow from each other, they take words from each other. Okay, so there were around 300 words, and that's still a lot, that initially this man thought were borrowed from the Arabic language by other languages, including in this case, English. So over the next, you know, years, many years, because he worked on this for a very long time, and you know, I've gone through through the book. It's a two-volume, two-big volume book. Uh, he talks about, you know, how he got to uh, do this kind of research, and what he reached as a conclusion initially is that his his initial idea was that there were about three hundred roots in Arabic that were borrowed and from which there were about 3,000 words that were borrowed in total from the Arabic language. At the end of his research, in the conclusion, there were about uh, 3,000 roots and 25,000 words that were taken from Arabic language into the English language. And it's fascinating to go through the words. So he lists those words in his Mu'jam, Mu'jam al-Firdaus, uh, the Dictionary of Paradise, if I remember how it's been translated. And just so that you know what it means when we say 25,000 words, 24,000 words were taken from the Arabic language into English, just so that you know, on average, an English average English speaker would probably know something like 20,000 words. And if they're very educated, they would know around double that, so it would be about 40,000 words. Just so that you know. And in normal speech, the people, so we're not talking about very technical words, words that people generally use in their daily lives, people use about 5,000 words when they speak English. So when we're saying that there are about 25,000 words that were borrowed from the English, from Arabic into English, that's a very, very big number, okay? Just to keep in mind. So that's the second thing. A third thing, the meaning in Arabic language, the Arabic language is called Mu'arab. It's the type of language that has Arab. And Arab is difficult to explain in a language that has no Arab. But generally speaking, it means that to understand the meaning of a word and the meaning of a sentence, I need to understand the Arab of it how the function that it performs in that sentence okay and hence we need to understand the rules that require me to change in arabic the way you mark this arab is usually by the ending of the word and that is the suffix the harakat that you put at the end and it's going to change it's called the declension it's going to change the meaning of the word or sometimes the function of the word in that sentence so and a language that is Mu'arab is going to give you a lot more power to work with to express what you're trying to say with fewer words. The same word is going to mean different things depending on its I'rab, okay? Depending on its position and depending on the role that it plays in that position, okay? If you keep in mind 
that the point of a language is to express meaning and to express realities to others, then the more you have that capacity, that expressive capacity, the more you are going to say that that language is powerful. It's a better language. It's a more effective and more efficient, therefore more eloquent language. You can express more with it by doing less, by using less. So it's more efficient, more effective. When linguists have studied the Arabic language, and I'm talking about real experts on the Arabic language, they say one, everybody kind of agrees that Mu'arab languages are much more powerful in their expressive ability than non-Mu'arab, that's one. And two, from all the Mu'arab languages, Arabic stands in a league of its own. Nothing compares to what the Arabic language is able to do in its Arab. So this is if you go to the specialists of the Arabic language. If, for instance, and I, I'm giving you a few examples, and I mean they're such, you know, reductionist, small examples, but just to give an idea of what we're talking about. So if you take, look at the words, in these cases, in any other language, if you look at كَيْفَ أَنْتَ Muhammad, the words are the same, okay? But the I'rab is changing. So in the first case, we're saying كَيْفَ أَنْتَ Muhammadun. In the second sentence, in the second version, we're saying Kaifa anta wa Muhammadan. Okay, if I say Kaifa anta wa Muhammadun, this is the nominative function. So that's why I'm indicating it with the un, with the dhamma in this case, the raf. Then basically I'm saying Kaifa anta wa Muhammadun. How are you and how is Muhammad? Kaifa anta wa Muhammadun. How are you and how is Muhammad? If I say Kaifa anta wa Muhammadan, this is the accusative case and in this case what i'm asking is how is the relationship between you and muhammad how's the relationship you can't say that in another language in this way nothing changed the same words i'm using the same words here you go to another language and you say if i say what am i saying i'm saying i'm categorical i'm 100 sure mahmoud is not gonna go so this is a justive case. If I go to the next one, the nominative or the indicative case, la yadhabu Mahmoud, tell Mahmoud not to go. La yadhabu Mahmoud. Okay? This is, this is when you start to see the power of the Arab that exists in certain languages. If you look at the stylistics, okay, so now we're going beyond just the words. If you look at words like, say, ghaffar, Okay, Ghaffar is supposed to be the, if you take a, a language that is, let's say, English, for instance, and you want to say something and you want to add intensity to it. So you say, for instance, something is good, something is better, something is the best. Okay, then that's it. You're out of option. Okay, so in Arabic, you could say, you could say something like Ghaffar, and you could say also something like Ghafur. And both of them mean, but in different ways, having a lot of maghfirah or ghafran. Okay, if you look at words like hammaz or humaza, ajib and ujab, and the Quran uses all of this, and it uses it to say something completely different. You can't just translate this with a word. You need a full sentence, and sometimes more, to explain the nuance between ghafar and ghafur. You can't say that in a word, but you can say that in Arabic. This is what, what we mean when we say that it has a lot of richness and a lot of expressive power in a very efficient way, in very few words, in very few syllables. In one sound, it can change the meaning entirely. And that's why, you know, some linguists say, when compared to Arabic, other languages are primitive. You're not able, it's like you don't have, one language has hundreds of tools and the other one has one or two. This is what you're working with. A'ta Muhammad Khalidan Kitaban. أَعْطَى مُحَمَّدٌ خَالِدًا كِتَابًا مُحَمَّدٌ أَعْطَى خَالِدًا كِتَابًا We are saying the same thing. The meaning of those words is the same. أَعْطَى gave Muhammad Muhammad Khalid is Khalid كِتَابًا a book. The words are the same. I'm not even changing here the Arab of the words. The same Arab. أَعْطَى is أَعْطَى in the second version. Muhammad, Muhammadun is Muhammadun. Khalidan, Khalidan, Kitabin. I flipped the order of the words. In the first one, I say, A'ta, Muhammadun, Khalidan, Kitabin. Muhammad gave Khalid a book. In the meaning of the words, 
If I say Muhammadun a'ta Khalidan kitaban, it means the same thing. It's still Muhammad gave Khalid a book. But what I'm really saying, there's a connotation. This is the unsaid part in the words, but this is understood by the true Arabic speaker. If you say a'ta Muhammadun Khalidan, it's kind of neutral. All of it may be new information. But if I say you flip the order from the original, and I can do this 10 different ways, Muhammadun a'ta Khalidan kitaban, it is Muhammad who gave Khalid a book. And so there was an unknown that now became known by flipping this order. See, I need to add in English, for instance, I need to add something like, it is Muhammad who gave. Now I've added something that I, I did not have to add in Arabic to add more meaning to it, to add the connotation to it. That's what I mean when I say it has more expressive power. And then there are other you know, things that may be added. For instance, Arabic does not need auxiliary verbs as you have in many languages. A verb is not powerful on its own, so you have to add a helper verb for it to stand and make full meaning itself. In Arabic, you don't need that. Okay, so this is where you see the strength, the expressiveness of those words in Arabic. Reduced use of articles and empty words. So how much expressiveness does a word have? How much meaning does it carry? If you use a lot of articles, articles don't carry a lot of meaning in themselves. When you say that, and, or, and, these are, that's why usually they're referred to as empty words. It's not like saying table and chair and house because they're helping you get the language or the idea across, but in itself, it's not really doing anything. In Arabic, there's very little of that compared to other languages. So every use of every word has a lot more meaning. So you need a lot less, a lot fewer of them. And this is something very interesting. As someone who has spent a lot of time studying languages, there's always usually a very interesting trade-off. Languages either have longer words, which means they have shorter sentences, or they have shorter words, which means they have longer sentences. So this is a trade-off. Are you going to be a language that allows you to combine at the word level or at the grammar level so that you get your idea across? In another way, what we're saying is for the majority of the languages, while some languages may have bigger words and some of them smaller words, some of them have bigger sentences, some of them smaller sentences. At the end, it's as though all of them have the same amount of sounds, the same amount of sound to say the same idea generally, except Arabic. <clears throat> Arabic is known to be a language that is extremely efficient. It can say a lot, and yet its words are relatively, to other languages, very short, and its sentences are very short. So the efficiency is at both levels. It did not lose efficiency at the word level or at the grammar and syntax or sentence level, okay? so something to keep in mind. So when we put all of this together, and there's a lot of other examples we can give, there's no question that the Arabic language is really, really impressive. I'm going to add something here. Does it mean that this language is actually impressive to the point of being miraculous? So that it has to be a language that was actually revealed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So the Arabic language is not only special, it's actually supernatural. It's actually miraculous. And, you know, there's been a lot of research done on this, and many, many criticize this idea, even in, you know, the Arabic world, and they are Arab linguists, and, you know, they, they know what they're talking about, too. And so there's a weakness. We're not saying that one side is right, one side is wrong. For sure, everybody agrees that the Arabic language is extremely special. It's in a league of its own in many, many different dimensions of the language analysis. But does it mean that it's actually supernatural or not? That's where we stop short. Just something to keep in mind, okay? The next answer, the third answer that we want to give. The third answer is that, you know all those verses that we recited, we're not going to go through it again. We don't have time. Just to give a couple of examples. All those verses that we recited about the Holy Quran being revealed in Arabic, Arabi, Quran, Arabi, Arabi, again and again. Well, in reality, that opinion says, so we're trying to answer the question, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal the Quran 
that is Arabi, in Arabic. That's how we understand it. This opinion, this uh, answer tells us it's actually not Arabic as in the Arabic language. We have to go back to the root of the word Arabe. Okay, so when the Arabs used to use the word Arab and Arabi and Mu'arab and so on and so forth, what do they mean? Before Quran, the Arabs of Jahiliyyah and the beginning of Islam, when they heard the term Arab and Arabi and Mu'arab and so on and so forth, what did they understood from it? How was that word used? Was it used to refer to the Arabic language or was it used to refer to something else? And this opinion is that it's actually not referring to the Arabic language. If you go back to the etymology, if you go back to the real meaning of these sounds put together, Arabe and Arabi, what it means is that it's something is pure, that something is plain, unaltered, authentic, original, clear, something that is manifest, something that is obvious and evident, something that is very precise. Okay, so if you keep this in mind, and you keep in mind that in, uh, in the Holy Quran, and it does that, the Holy Quran does that, the opposite, if you go back to the way the Arabs spoke, the opposite of this is A'jami. So the term, the, the, the same etymology of A'jama and A'jami and A'jam and Mu'jam and so on and so forth is what? Is, refer, is referring to the opposite of what is Mu'arab and what is Mu'arab. And what is Arab and Arabi and Arab and Arabi and so on and so forth, which is something that is not clear, something that is ambiguous and confused and incomplete, insufficient in itself. Okay, so now if you go back to the verses in the Quran and you read the verses that have to do with the Arabic, it seems when you read it in the English translation that the translator has chosen to interpret the Arabi as Arabic language. But what if the real meaning was, it means it's something very clear, it's something very evident, it's something that clarifies. So you go back to the verses and you said, Certainly we have drawn for humankind of this Quran from every kind of example so that they may remember an Arabic Quran. Now imagine, instead of saying an Arabic Quran, we say a Quran in a pure language, a Quran in a manifest, evident, clear language, free from distortion, comprising no crookedness, that they may be, that they may guard against evil, that they may become pious. And this can be applied to the other verses too. Kitabun Fusilat Ayatuhu, a book whose verses have been explained in detail. Quranan Arabian Likomi Alamun. A Quran that is very clear, or a Quran that is Arabic, a Quran that is purely clear, evident, manifest, not ambiguous at all for a people who know. And here, those who say this, they say, if you look, and I'm not going to go through all the verses we recited, but I told you, try to keep in mind, when the Quran says it's an Arabi, 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 and all those verses, didn't it give you a reason? In every case, it gave you a reason. It said so that you may know, so that you may understand, so that you may be warned, so that you may remember, so that you may become pious and, and, and fear God. And Okay, but what does it have to do what do any of those things have to do with it being Arabic? What if it was in another language? Could I not remember? Could I not fear God? Could I not learn? Could I not understand and reason? Ah, so they say, in this opinion, that the Holy Quran is revealed in a clear language so that you may do all of those things. It's not that it's revealed in the Arabic language. It's revealed in a language that is the most expressive and the most rich and the most clear so that you may understand. So it's not the specificity in the sense that the Quran is miraculously in Arabic. It's not, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that it's miraculous in its content, but its content was put in the Arabic language so that you may understand it. Okay, so the Arabic is not really about the Arabic language. 
as much as it is about a clear language, a manifest language, an evident, obvious language, authentic, original, uh, one that you can understand, everybody can understand, and to play that function that has been mentioned. Okay. So if we look at this specific answer, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives, if, if this is valid, we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed this Quran in a language that allows you to be pious, allows you to reason. It's basically a clarifying tongue, a clarifying language. And so it doesn't have to do with the specific Arab, Arabicness, Arabness of the Holy Quran. And this has to be linked with an answer that we're going to give in number five. Okay, so keep this in mind. We're going to come back to this. Answer four, the theory of the original language, and we are going to run out of time soon, so I'm going to go quickly here. To be honest with you guys, this is still a theory in progress. Okay, this is not a, a completely uh, formulated, well formulated theory. There are bits and pieces of it by some thinkers and authors out there, and I'm working on putting all of this together into something a lot more developed. But the short, this is the very, get, you're getting the Reader's Digest version of this theory right now. Language is a system to express meaning. This theory says, the classic theory today in linguistics, if you were to study linguistics, it's all based on Ferdinand de Saussure's theory, says that the sounds and the way they're put together is arbitrary. So it's random. There is no link between, let's say, the word apple and an apple. And that's why if you go to another language, like Arabic, you have another word that says tufah. So the sounds that you're saying, the sounds that you're using, have nothing to do with the reality you're describing. How did we get to the word tufah in Arabic and apple in English? Who knows? Completely random. Group of people decided together and it spread and it became popular enough that today we call it a language and this is the word that we use. That's kind of what the theory says. This theory of the original language goes completely against this. And it basically says the original language of humanity was not random. And this, there's a link here between what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught Adam alayhi salam. Al-asma'a kullaha. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught him the all of the names okay so the, here the the reference is allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught language to humanity the language that he taught to prophet adam salam, if it is this in this sense this is how it's understood in this theory is that every sound that a human being says carries meaning in itself it's not random the original language of humanity the one language from which all other languages eventually developed that language every sound carries meaning in itself and once you combine sounds you create new meaning and if you move the sound depending on where it is in proportion to other sounds that gives another meaning okay so that's one thing to keep in mind the other thing to keep in mind this theory says is that the, the fact that a sound carries a meaning is not because someone told you this sound means that. You intuitively understand this. Psychologically, you are wired to understand this because these sounds are natural. They're based on the way you are wired and you are created, not just you, the entire universe. These sounds exist in the real world. And you are replicating them with your vocal cords and your uh, vocal uh, instrument, your mouth and your uh, everything that you have that generates your language. You are replicating what is out there in nature. And that those sounds in nature, they carry meaning. And as a human being, you're using that meaning. So it has, that's one level, the meaning, the intellectual aspect, the cognitive aspect, but it also has a psychological aspect to it. It has an effect. Every sound that you hear as a human being has a specific vibration 
and it has a specific effect on you as a human being. You are wired to receive and to react those sounds in a certain way. And that matches the laws of nature. In other words, if there is such a thing as a revealed language that matches where those sounds are natural, that is the closest thing that we would have in a language world that matches the blueprint of the creation of the world. The laws are all the same. They just appear differently depending on which angle you're looking at them from. Right? So if you're looking at them from matter and things, you can look at it from a physical point of view, mathematical, chemical, biological, but the sound is there. These vibrations are there. They're part of the created universe. And there are laws that manage and dictate what happens when certain creatures, like a human being, hears certain things, certain vibrations. So the natural use of the sounds, the more you use the natural way the sounds are supposed to come to you, the more you understand, the more it carries the true meaning, those sounds, one, and two, the healthiest it is for you to be hearing it in that manner, in this way. And this is maybe, maybe a reason why, for instance, when you are about to slaughter an animal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the word of the name of God on it, say Allah on it. Because that vibration that you're generating by saying that, or when you read the Holy Quran, and that, that vibration that you're using to recite the Holy Quran, when we say, for instance, it has blessing, there might be a material dimension to this. So that it actually has a true impact on the anything that's receiving this, especially if it's alive. Then it's receiving it a lot more than something that's dead. The dead thing is still receiving, but not like the thing that, like a plant. An animal will receive more. And a human, even if they don't understand the words, the vibration, which means the sounds that you're making, the sounds that have been put together in this way in the Holy Quran is what can generate certain effects in things, in plants and animals and people, for instance. This is all of this theory is, you know, coherent and holds true. So when we come back to the Holy Quran, bottom line is it's revealed in this language because today the Arabic language is the closest thing we have to the original language, which matches the Thing that was revealed to humanity where sound equals meaning and it's put together in that way so that means we have to go back to the sounds of the Quran and see how the sounds of the word actually carry the meaning of that word okay the last answer that we can give to this so that we don't take too long is that the reason when we concentrate on why the Quran was revealed in Arabic in Arabic we're missing the point the Holy Quran is miraculous, yes, but it's not because it's revealed in Arabic. There was something absolutely astonishing and surprising and had huge impact on the people receiving that language when it was revealed to them in Arabic because they understood that. But the miraculous nature of the Quran, and we spent a lot of time on this, but I want to come back to it, is that humanity, as it evolves, as it matures, as the human collective mind evolves, the more it evolves, the more it can understand from the whole Quran. And this is part of the miraculousness of the Quran. This depth in the meaning of the Holy Quran. Okay, so if that is the case, then when I look at the Holy Quran, whether the miraculousness of the format is there or not, slowly and with time becomes secondary. Because what really matters to me as humanity evolves and as humanity goes deeper and deeper into knowledge and into understanding the world and to understanding the laws that govern the world, the universe, and as I need more and more complex things from the Holy Quran and I discover them once I go looking for them, this is the true miraculous nature of the Quran, which means that it's not really about concentrating about the Arabic on the Arabicness of the Quran. It's more about looking at the content of what the Quran is saying. Okay? So why was it revealed in Arabic? Impartial answer is because the original recipients needed to be that group of people. But today, when this can very easily be a universal message, yes, when you take the Quran and you make it into English or French or Russian, you are only taking one interpretation, but that's more reason to study it. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made him this way. But still the point is that you concentrate on the content. If you want to get the full experience, you need to go and spend some time studying Arabic and understanding it. But you're still not missing the point by going to another language and understanding the Quran. And this is obviously a call now for people to go and read the Quran and try to convey it and translate it to convey the most meaning that they can to the world. Okay? So, keeping all of this in mind, this is the link between the when we talked about the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, we said not to concentrate on those things that make you stuck in time. To concentrate on more of those things that take the Qur'an into eternity, making it into the universal message for the rest of humankind, for all of time. And the last point to link to this is that, if you remember we said, so does it mean, if we say, depending on which answer we take, if, if Arabic is special, does it mean that it needs to be miraculously special? Supernaturally special? No. Let's say that the Holy Quran is revealed in Arabic. And the more we study Arabic and other languages and compare between them, we see that it's not that special. What's available in Arabic is also all available in other languages. And as special as it is, maybe in the future there will be a language that, is, that will be even more efficient than Arabic. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for all the right reasons, and some of them we mentioned and some of them we didn't, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still revealed it in Arabic. Does that take away from the miraculousness of the Holy Quran? No, it does not. The miraculousness of the Holy Quran that we presented rested on so much more than just the Arabicness. The Arabicness is one component of the Quran. In fact, what we were trying to show is that the Holy Quran is miraculous in everything including the Arabicness. But it's not limited to the Arabicness. And in this world, and in this age, if the Arabicness of the Holy Quran is not what matters the most to the majority of people, to us or to others, don't concentrate on that. Go after the other aspects of the Holy Quran that are miraculous and that are relevant to today's world and concentrate on those and look those up and research those to yourself, for yourself, and for the others, so that that message can be portrayed to the rest of humanity. I will stop here, and inshallah, this concludes our topic about why was Islam and why was the Holy Quran revealed to that group of people, the Arabs, and why was it revealed in Arabic? Inshallah, the answer was thorough enough, and you feel that we've answered it completely, and now we are ready to go back to the series where we had stopped, and inshallah, the next time we meet, we are going to start the topic of imamah. Okay? So see you all soon. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all and protect you all. And uh, let's talk soon, inshallah. Keep me in your prayers. Fi amanillah. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.